All right, let's turn once again in our Bibles to Revelation 21. Let's be reminded again that this is not man's word, this is God's word. And we should listen to it, apply it to our hearts and lives, especially today as we look to a future time for all believers in Christ, which we often refer to as the eternal state. And in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ bears the title of the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. And this alludes to his eternal nature and sovereign power over the universe. And on our communion Sundays, we have considered the description of his nature and his character in chapter 1 and his messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. The final two mentions of this title occur in the last two chapters of Revelation. And here we kind of fast forward beyond the church age in which we are living, beyond the tribulation period, the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne of judgment, to that eternal state of all believers in Christ. Now in this passage that we read, is described for us the new heaven and the new earth in which those who trust Christ will dwell for all of eternity. It will be populated by us, others who believe as we do, and most importantly, by the triune God himself. So this is really the end game of God's program of redemption. Even the saints who have passed on in a curly and glory have not fully experienced what this passage unveils for us. And there's not a great deal revealed in the word of God about the glory of heaven other than what we find in the book of Revelation, especially these last two chapters. And this is what Paul alluded to when he partially quoted Isaiah the prophet, who said, but as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And the verb prepared there in that prophecy is the same one we find here in verse 2, Revelation 21, as John sees that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It is also the word that Jesus used as he promised his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. We find it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, alluding to the patriarchs who we studied in Genesis, who believed the promises of God, but did not receive them in their lifetime. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this is the city in Revelation 21 that he's talking about. Now down in verse 5, it tells us, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And that's coming from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. So this morning as we are encouraged by these future truths, uh, let's... uh, Ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful 
that you have revealed yourself to us, your plan of salvation to us from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. That plan has been unfolded before us. Lord, as we have seen the first promises uh, way back in Genesis, we now see their full fruition in the future that lies ahead for all believers in Christ Jesus. Uh, May we be encouraged as we come before your table, as you told us that you would uh, drink the fruit of the vine new with us in that kingdom. And we just pray your blessing on your word this morning in Jesus' name, amen. In this vision, the Apostle John uh, sees three things pertaining to this eternal state, this eternal condition. First, he sees a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. Then he sees a new dwelling place in the form of a city coming down from the uh, heights of heaven in which all the saints of God will dwell. Finally, he sees the Lord Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, enthroned and encouraging his people in that kingdom. So first of all, let's take a look again at verse 1, where we see Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, creates a new habitation for his people. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As John reveals these truths to us, we're informed again in verse 5 that the author of these things, the creator of these new things, is the Lord Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, who says, Behold, I make all things new. So let's think about the chronology of the Bible that leads up to this event. Right now, we're living in the church age, or the age of grace, we often call it. And this consists of the time immediately following the ascension of Christ back into heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That was the birthday of the church of Christ when 3,000 souls were brought into a faith relationship with him and became the first members of the first church. Now, from that time forward, all people who trust the gospel of Christ uh, become members of his spiritual body, which we sometimes refer to as the universal church. But they are also to become members of a local body of believers, as did the first Christians in Jerusalem, and then Antioch, the seven churches of Revelation, and other cities where the gospel was proclaimed. And it's through the church that the gospel is spread in the world today, and believers are edified as they worship God together. The church age ends with what we call the rapture of the church, described in the book of Revelation. And uh, during that time, God is going to judge earth dwellers who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. At that time, the Antichrist will be brought into power. He will deceive the world, and his rule will be for a very short period of time. The Lord Jesus will return. He will destroy the Antichrist, the false prophet, the enemies that gather to fight against Jerusalem, and he will set up his earthly kingdom, which will uh, be a reign of 1,000 years. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. 
At the end of that reign, the word of God tells us, again in the book of Revelation, Satan, who has been chained during that period of Christ's reign, will be released for one last rebellion against God, which will fail. And this will be followed by the great white throne of judgment, where every person who's not trusted Christ will stand and will confess that they are sinners and deserving of eternal punishment. And at the end of that great white throne of judgment, we finally come to chapter 21 in the book of Revelation, which describes for us the, uh, the last state of believers, which we often refer to as the eternal state. So this is the final stage of God's redemptive program uh, that uh, begins with our passage, the creation of this new heaven and this new earth. Now, the original creation in which we live is going to pass away, as John says here. It has passed away. The verb that's used there means that it will cease to exist. Some believe that the current earth is going to be totally renovated and restored so that nothing evil is present in it. There are some passages that might suggest that, but I believe that they probably apply to the millennial reign where the earth will be changed, will be different than it is now because Christ will be reigning. I believe that our current universe is totally dissolved and the Lord will bring into existence now a new creation. And these seem to fit well with uh, what Peter writes in his second epistle. I want to read these verses to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That seems to indicate that when uh, the great white throne occurs, this is going to happen because everything will fade away or flee away from the face of the judge at that time. Uh, and he goes on to say, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and, go- and godliness? So we ought to be living for the Lord until that time occurs. Now, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, this describes what happens at the great white throne. And it says there in verse 11, uh, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So I believe that's the time when the old creation will be dissolved, will be destroyed. All those who are there who will be judged will be cast into the lake of fire, and God will then make the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there's an interesting absence in that new creation. You'll note it says there was no more sea. Well, the waters of the earth currently support and influence the weather patterns that create precipitation necessary for life and other things. And it seems that at that time, this will no longer be necessary because the saints are going to receive the water of everlasting life from the Lord, and there's not going to be any need for a material life support. There won't be any sun there either, uh, the book of Revelation says in chapter 22. Now, the current seas and oceans also represent a negative factor. 
You know that close to 75% of the Earth's surface is uninhabitable because it's made up of water. It separates the continents. It inhibits some forms of travel. Uh, it has historically been associated with a loss of life and uh, uh, through storms and hurricanes, typhoons, tsunamis, this kind of thing, uh, we realize that this is something that is kind of chaotic to mankind. One commentator wrote this, it represents a principle of disorder, violence, or unrest that marks the old creation. So in many ways, the oceans, the seas, have been hostile to humanity, so they will not exist in this new creation. Nothing can exist in that world that is not totally beneficial to eternal life. Well, let's go on to the next couple of verses here. Not only is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth, uh, which will be populated by God's people, we see that Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, dwells there among his people in a way that he has not since the beginning of creation. And verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this is the next thing that John sees. He views this beautiful city descending from heaven, the abode of God, and this is none other than the future dwelling place of God's people. So let's take a look then at some of its features. He sees a holy city, and he calls it the new Jerusalem. You know that Jerusalem is still the capital of Israel, and since the days of, uh, of King David, uh, who captured it from the Canaanites, it has been noted a holy city. It's holy because that's the place where God came down and dwelt in his temple. And that temple symbolized the presence of God who was to be worshipped uh, by his people as he symbolically rested among them. However, because the people did not always follow the Lord, uh, the Lord was not uh, 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 the holiness of God was not practiced by them. Eventually, he had to abandon his temple and uh, bring judgment upon his rebellious people. So although the, the holy character of God was present there, the holy character of his people often were not. Now, the character of this new Jerusalem, however, will be perfect holiness. The place will be holy, the inhabitants will be holy. Sin will not exist in the eternal state. The city and those who dwell in it will become perfectly righteous for all of eternity. I wonder, do you ever long for that condition? As we struggle with our own penchant for wrong behavior, as we look at the world around us, and we see all the crime and the corruption and the evil in the world, does it not make you yearn for a dwelling place, a place where there is no longer evil existing in yourself and in the whole environment in which you live? Someday, by God's grace, that's the way it's going to be. We'll no longer be able uh, to be capable of sinning, there will be no evil angels or worldly allurements to tempt us. The new world is going to be free 
from all evil. John also describes this city as a bride adorned for her husband. And God's people are often alluded to as being his wife or his bride. Now, this metaphor is used of the saints in chapter 19 of Revelation in verses 6 through 8, describing uh, the future marriage supper of the Lamb. And it reads there, I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. She has prepared herself. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So those righteous acts will be present in God's people for all of eternity. And so this city is described as a place as well as a people that are prepared for it coming down out of heaven. Um, A bride adorns herself in such a way that she will be pleasing in the eyes of her groom. Do you remember when your bride walked down the aisle? Was she dressed in jeans and a sweatshirt? I hardly think so. She wore that wonderful wedding dress that enhanced her beauty in your eyes. And that should be our desire as we look forward to meeting Christ and populating that great city. Now, the adornment of this city presented as a bride is also uh, described for us in a material way, beginning in verse 9 and going all the way through the end of the chapter. Now, we're not going to get into all of that, but just let me share with you a few things that are covered there. Uh, It is a four-square construction with four gates on each of its four sides carved out of giant pearls. It sits on 12 foundations decorated with ornate stones, which represent the apostles. Its streets are constructed of translucent gold. That means you can see through it. Its walls are 200 feet high and appear to shine as diamonds. And its dimensions are quite impressive. 1,500 miles in length and width and height. That would cover a distance halfway across the United States and from Boston to Miami, Florida. And uh, I figured out the interior space would enfold 3,375,000,000 miles. Now, how many people do you think could live comfortably in that space? And that's where we're going to gather together for all of eternity. Now, that may be an impressive feature, but the most impressive feature, the most important one, is that the presence of God will be literally among his people, materially among his people, as verse 3 states here. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God. 
So the impressive thing about the eternal state is that we will be able to live in the very presence of God himself. The word tabernacle here means a tent or a dwelling place. And you'll remember that God first lived among his Old Testament people in the tabernacle constructed in the wilderness. And wherever the tabernacle went, the Lord was present with them in that place. Eventually, it became a little bit more permanent until the temple was built, and that became the center of Israel's worship. Again, the Lord dwelling among them in the Holy of Holies. Now, in the church age, through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God also tabernacles with his people, but in a different way than in the Old Testament. He dwells within us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that one of Christ's names is Emmanuel. Do you remember what that means? It means God with us. So the Alpha and Omega actually became a man. He dwelt with us so that one day we could dwell with him. And until that day comes, he lives in us through the Holy Spirit, an advantage that the Old Testament saints did not have. But in this new Jerusalem, In this future eternal state, we will finally dwell in the immediate presence of our God. The Lord will commune with us as he did Adam and Eve in their original state of innocence before the fall. And what a glorious day that will be. When we see the Lord Jesus, we live in this place of eternal glory. Now, one more thing is brought out about this place here in verse 4, and that's the absence of the curse and its effects. Because we're told here that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There aren't going to be any more situations that cause us to well up in tears. What causes us to be tearful, uh, to be sorrowful, to cry today? Well, the things mentioned here, death, and sorrow and pain. Uh, yesterday, I led a committal service. Uh, a young man had died. He's only 33 years old. His parents were there, and uh, brothers and sisters and relatives. And of course, is a time where some of them were weeping. Why? Because someone parted from them. They lost a loved one. Death had entered the picture, and that always causes some sorrow and pain. So all these were introduced when Adam and Eve sinned, when the fall came. Every human being since then has experienced the burden and misery and sorrow of earthly life as well as its joys. All of us know the anguish and the stress caused by our own sin and that of others, be it physical or emotional or mental in nature, but none of that's going to be present in this uh, future state of glory. It's not going to be there anymore. And we might think, well, why is that so? How come that's going to pass away? Well, it's going to be because when the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord Jesus, came into this world, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows at the cross. That great passage in Isaiah 53 tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that he was smitten of God 
and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, he suffered all these things for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 5, uh, the Lord Jesus is described in this way, who in the days of his flesh, when he was here in, in, as, as a man, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So he suffered for us in the garden. He wept. He cried out. He felt the burden of every single sin of every single human being of uh, all generations upon him as he went to the cross and paid the penalty for all those sins. It's because of his suffering for us that we look forward to the absence of suffering for all of eternity and how we ought to be thankful and look forward to that final dwelling place of believers. Well, the last thing that John sees is listed in verses 5 through 8. And he sees the Alpha and the Omega enthroned and living among his people and encouraging them in this scene. Well, in verse 5, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. So who is it that is sitting on the throne, identified later as the Alpha and the Omega? Some believe this is God the Father. And uh, that's a possibility. Of course, the Father and the Son are co-equal. And in the Old Testament, God the Father is alluded to as Alpha and Omega. But the last throne that we mentioned, we saw back in chapter 20, was the great white throne of judgment. And John says in his gospel that all judgment is going to be given to the hands of the Son. And so we might assume that he's the one who sits on the great white throne, and he still sits on the throne that we see here for all of eternity. Later on, it will say that the throne of uh, God the Father and the Lamb is going to be present there. But as we think about the description of the Alpha and the Omega, it seems that this is applying to the Lord Jesus Christ again in this passage. So this makes uh, the end game become real to us as he says, Behold, I make all things new. And then he makes one declaration in verse 6. He said to me, It is done. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words that he shouted out were, it is finished. In other words, the work of redemption was finished through his death on the cross, the payment for our sin, and then uh, verified by his resurrection from the dead. But now everything has been finished. Everything ordained from eternity has finally come to pass Uh, as he sits on that throne and he says, things are now consummated for all of eternity. So this marks the completion of God's divine plan from the beginning of time uh, to the uh, eternal period. 
And the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has finished his saving work devised from eternity to eternity. Now, as he sits upon that throne, he is not silent. Uh, He has some things to say that are an encouragement to his people. He said to me in verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So it seems at that time in the eternal state, we are still going to participate in the, the eternal life by partaking of this fountain of water, this spring of water, Uh, that later may be described in verse 1 of chapter 22, a pure river of water of life, uh, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So maybe that will be what we're taking in all the time uh, to keep that spiritual body refreshed and living forever and ever. At any rate, uh, there are allusions in the Old and New Testament of the Lord Jesus freely and graciously giving to anyone who desires it this living water, this spiritual water, which is he himself. Remember when he was uh, talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and uh, he was talking about some kind of water that, that is living and you don't have to go to the well and, and get it every day? He was talking about himself and uh, using that as a illustration that as water is necessary for physical life, he is necessary for spiritual life. And uh, we will imbibe that water, whatever the meaning is, for all of eternity. Then he gives a final promise here to overcomers, similar to what he gave to the churches back in chapters 2 and 3. He says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. The Apostle Paul especially alludes to this concept of inheritance, uh, spiritual inheritance. We all know what that means uh, as far as a physical one goes, but being sons of God. Now, this is more than children of God being in his family. This alludes to an adult son who stands to be the heir of the whole inheritance of the father. And so that means that each one of us who knows the Lord is going to be the heir of this eternal state and all the blessings that have been promised to us from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And we will experience it for all time in this place. The last thing that we find coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, is something that's very fearful. And that's in verse 8. This is his judgment warning those who do not know him, those who will not listen to him, those who reject him. This final statement tells us that there will be many, many people not present in this eternal state. And it's a frightful warning to turn from our sinful ways to the Lord Jesus before it's too late. He mentions a number of, of sinful actions here. He mentions the cowardly. Who are the cowardly or the fearful? Well, they are those who are afraid to confess Christ because they fear what others may think of them or what the cost of following him might be. It also may allude to those who have professed Christ but turn from him because of persecution 
or uh, oppression that has made them fearful and afraid and really shown that they have a false profession of faith. Then there are those who are in the category of the unbelieving, those who fail to place their trust in Christ, those who won't believe what the word of God says about him, those who reject it out of hand. Then there are the abominable. Well, the Lord reserves that for the worst sins that we can think of and those that are most despicable in his sight. And of course, people who commit those sins can be forgiven, but apparently this group is not and will not and don't want to be forgiven. He mentions murderers. And none of us here would say, well, I'm not a murderer. But the word of God says, if you've ever hated somebody in your heart, Well, you are a murderer because hatred is what is behind that, even if you don't carry it out in some kind of a uh, harmful act. He goes on to mention here the sexually immoral. Of course, we don't really have to explain that very much today. It's all over the place in our world. And this covers all acts of sexual sin outside of the marriage a relationship between one man and one woman that the Bible clearly teaches. And he goes on to mention sorcerers, those who dwell, uh, delve in witchcraft and magic, casting spells, uh, hallucinogenic drugs. That's something that is a plague in our country today. The devil's behind that. Satan worship, everything associated with the occult. God says those people will be judged. Idolaters are those who put anything in their life above God. And, of course, liars are those who hide the truth, stretch the truth, tell a bald-faced lie or a little white lie. All of us are liars. So this is a list, a partial list, of sins that have not been forgiven because they haven't come to Christ for that forgiveness. And those whose sins have not been forgiven will also go to a place that is eternal in nature. Uh, And this place will exist far and away, out of sight from the new Jerusalem. They will be cast in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the lake of fire where the devil will be, where his angels will be where those who will refuse to trust Christ as their Savior will be for all of eternity. They will not partake of the eternal life, the eternal city, the new uh, Jerusalem, the new creation. They will not be free from pain and sorrow and anguish, but they will experience the second death, which is also an everlasting state. What a horrible fate awaits those who will not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the redemption of their souls. This passage is full of wonder and sure hope for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. It concludes with a sheer state of terror for those who do not. Where you spend eternity depends on what you do with the Lord Jesus who died for you, who rose again for you, and wants to forgive you of your sins. That work that he did is the actual preparation of that eternal state that he promises to those who trust him. As we come before the Lord's table, we can be thankful for our destiny as believers. 
that we are going to share in the consummation of all things with Christ, who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega of eternity. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, as we come before your table, that you will help us to be filled with joy and anticipation of living in a new world where there's nothing evil, there's nothing sinful, that everything that we've experienced in this life that is against your will will be taken away. We too will be a holy people. We will not have any struggles with sin and temptation and uh, the, the uh, difficult things of life that we've experienced. All those things will pass away and all things will become new. So Lord, we just pray your blessing and your encouragement to us as we participate and remember what Christ did to make this possible. We also thank Lord of those today who may not yet know you that you will put in their hearts and minds the great danger of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them, Lord, to realize that they are sinful and they need to come to you for forgiveness, for which you will give them the gift of eternal life and all these great blessings of the future. Bless us as we continue this morning, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.